Jackson, Ontario. You are now joining us live on Pro Bono Radio CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. My name is Afshin and I'm a second year law student here at the Queen's Faculty of Law and I have the pleasure of being your host today. Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio is a podcast which discusses interesting and off-center legal topics that aim to make legal discussions more accessible to you. We strive to stimulate interest and provide information while always being entertaining. Today, we're going to start off by talking about a man named McKinley Phipps, known by his stage name Lil Mac. Lil Mac is a rapper from New Orleans. Lil Mac, we're going to call him Mac, had no criminal record. He was just a guy who loved poetry and performing rap music. On February 20th, 2000, while performing at an open mic night, someone was shot and killed at the venue. All chaos broke loose, and Mac came back to the scene of the crime to look for his parents who were there at the event. He wanted to make sure that his parents were safe. He took out his own legally registered gun for safety, but witnesses saw this gun, and this led him to becoming the prime suspect in the crime. Mac was charged with first-degree murder. The gun Mac was carrying had never been fired. Mac had no prior criminal record. The actual murder weapon was never found. And there were several eyewitnesses who described the shooter as someone who looked completely different from Mac. But at trial, the prosecution used lyrics from Mac's rap song to prove that the defendant who did this is the same defendant who wrote lyrics like, Murder, murder, kill, kill, you F with me, you get a bullet in your brain. The jurors didn't know at the time that these lyrics are actually from entirely different songs. Mac wrote Shell Shocked, a song in which he rapped about his dad who served in the Vietnam War, saying, Big Mac, that's my daddy, you dirty rotten soldier, you F with me, he'll give you a bullet in your brain. And the words murder, murder, kill, kill are lyrics from an entirely different song with its own context. But the jury convicted Mac of manslaughter, and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. In an interview later, jury members revealed that these rap lyrics helped to make the jury make their own decision to convict Mac of manslaughter. Today, there exists mountains of evidence that Mac was wrongfully convicted, but to this day, he's still serving his prison sentence. Now, let's talk about a case in Canada. A man named Lamar Skeet was charged for attacking someone after the cops had reported him. The man who reported Skeet for an attack was later murdered, and Skeet was charged with manslaughter. While in jail, Skeet wrote a few rap songs and one particular song called Live from the Dawn, which was recorded from pre-child detention in Toronto's Dawn Jail. The song contained the lyrics, Real N-words don't crack at the copper's mother effer. The Crown wanted to introduce this evidence to show that Skeet killed a man as a retaliation to snitching to the cops, and this was the motive for murder. The Crown wanted to argue that Skeet was upset about the breach of a code of silence, the code of silence where you're not supposed to talk to the police or snitch. But Skeet said that these lyrics did not refer to the code of silence at all. Rather, it meant that real inmates in the jail, they don't open up to correctional officers and ask to leave the unit within which they've been assigned. Skeet was charged with first-degree murder and is still in prison today, serving out his sentence. This podcast is not aimed to make you like rap music. This podcast is not trying to claim that all rappers who are charged with criminal offenses are innocent. This podcast is concerned with something much more simple. This podcast is about the denial of justice. We are live in Kingston, Ontario on CFRC 101.9 FM on Pro Bono Radio. And you are listening to today's episode of Crime to Rhyme, a discussion on the admissibility of rap lyrics and Canadian criminal trials. 
Today, we are so lucky to have our esteemed guest, Professor Kelly, join us for our discussion. Most of this conversation is about the use of rap lyrics in courts and concerns the law of evidence, a distinct area of law within which Professor Kelly is very much an expert. Professor Kelly has been teaching criminal law and evidence at the Queen's Faculty of Law and has been known for her scholarship in the particular area of evidence. Every year, she has taught the course and has set aside intentional time in class to specifically discuss the use of rap lyrics in criminal trials, inviting her students to engage with this controversial yet evolving area within the law. Outside of the classroom, Professor Kelly is truly one of the most caring and compassionate professors I've ever come across. She has always centered the student experience and their needs, and we're so excited to have this amazing scholar and honestly, overall, wonderful human being join us today. Thank you, Professor Kelly, for being with us. Oh, thanks so much, Justine. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. And thanks for starting and continuing a really uh, important conversation uh, about the laws of evidence and in particular about the rise of the use of rap lyrics in prosecutions in both the United States and in Canada. So thanks for having me. It's great to be in discussion about this. Yeah, I'm very excited. I think we're going to have a really, really cool conversation today. And I just want to remind our audience before we even jump into this podcast that you don't have to be a rap connoisseur or you don't have to be an expert in the law of evidence to join and really partake in this discussion. Although if you do end up liking rap, that's obviously an unintentional effect that I would very much welcome. Any level of knowledge is fine. You can just join us. And yeah, I guess we can get started. What do you say, Professor? Absolutely. Let's get to it. <laughs> All right. So for our first question, I want to ask, why is the use of rap lyrics as evidence in criminal trials a controversial issue? And why should we as law students, lawyers, academics, and just citizens be concerned with this? It's a great question, I've seen. And uh, I think as our discussion unfolds, I hope that people see a number of intersecting threads uh, around questions of race, class, age, and structural inequality that really define the criminal system. And I think that's where rap evidence fits in. I would just say at the outset, people might be, especially those who are not in law, maybe unfamiliar with this. One, the, a, a rudimentary question that I think is important to address is, how are rap lyrics coming into criminal trials or perhaps criminal proceedings or police investigations at all? Um, what's the entry point for them? And I would just say at the outset that they're primarily being used in a few different ways. Um, one is that it occurs when the prosecution or police in the uh, in investigatory phases of a process um, suggest that rap lyrics are autobiographical, that they represent the actual lived reality and experience of that particular person, and particularly when they have been made subsequent to an alleged crime, uh, this would be the mode of rap lyrics as confession. So the idea that uh, when police and prosecutors listen to particular lyrics, uh, they hear disclosed in those lyrics confession evidence that they then want to use as part of their prosecution. Um, another way that they might come in would be around issues of motive or intent. So uh, at the outset, when you introduced, Efshin, the case of Skeet, um, the uh, allegation there was that this was a rap lyric performed after an alleged crime, but it wasn't, the suggestion wasn't that 
Skeet had per se uh, confessed to killing a particular individual. Uh, the allegation was that his lyrics apparently against uh, snitching uh, as the uh, talking to police or correctional officers is often uh, colloquially referred to as snitching, um, that this suggested that he uh, believed in a code of silence and crucially that he was motivated in allegedly murdering someone else in enforcing that code of silence. So that's the kind of rap lyric as providing motive or intent type of use. Um, a final one is where the rap lyric is actually used itself as forming part of or the whole of a crime. So this would be where police or prosecutors are alleging that the lyric that somebody performed or wrote actually constitutes a live threat to someone else and that it's a criminal threat and that they should be able to proceed with charges of uttering threats for instance, obviously a, a crime under our criminal code um, based on these lyrics. So those are some of the ways in which this kind of evidence is mobilized in the last couple of decades. Um, I would say that there should be uh, several, and, and I think, again, I'm, I'm going to cite to various people who have done really important work in this area and whose research I draw upon uh, in my teaching, um, and, and a couple of really fundamental concerns I think need to be at, at the front of our mind when we're talking about this. The first is the general question of artistic expression, abstracted a little bit above and beyond uh, rap lyrics. And that's just the question about when one is consuming or viewing or listening to artistic expression, uh, how often do we, and is it correct, to conflate the artistic creation and expression with the actual artist. And what we have seen in the use of rap lyric evidence is courts, prosecutors, uh, police have tended to conflate the creator of the lyric with the content and uh, have been reluctant when they're trying to rely on this evidence to appreciate the fact that like many, most, or all forms of artistic creation, there's often a distance between the author, the creator, and the art that they're producing. And um, not recognizing that distance with respect to rap really is kind of a baked-in form of inequality in terms of how we are treating this as artistic expression or not recognizing it as artistic expression as compared to other forms of music, poetry, other writing. Yeah, I just um, wanted to <laughs> jump in, Professor, and yeah. say, too, that um, yeah. especially with rap music, it is, it's a distinct issue with this specific genre, as you said. For example, all of us, or many of us know the song Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, where he writes, right. Mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head, pulled the trigger, now he's dead. But we afford an artist like Freddie Mercury the authority to kind of use that artistic expression to talk and 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 we don't think of it as literal as you said as autobiographical but rather just an expression of of at the time of sexuality and we don't really afford the same thing to to rappers and we'll we'll de dive into the social science that's behind this but what, it's it's this phenomena of of anti-blackness that's laced with a lot of other really negative stereotypes where we think, okay, these lyrics must be autobiographical because this particular demographic might have a particular propensity towards violence and crime. 
I think that's absolutely right. Um, and and another disturbing feature within that is that um, most, if not the vast majority of cases in the U.S. and Canada where uh, Crown prosecutors or police are relying in part or in whole on rap evidence tend to be what we might refer to as, quote, amateur rappers. So the, the rappers who have had great commercial success may be selling out um, uh, concert venues are uh, incredibly at the center of mainstream art and culture. For the most part, um, it seems like the general public, including police, people in law enforcement, uh, are able to understand and grant them uh, this reality of perhaps having a persona or of uh, describing realities that they're seeing, but not necessarily speaking in a purely autobiographical way, right? That they have another name, that Drake from The Six is actually, <laughs> you know, Aubrey. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, we've seen as a, as a culture able to do that. However, for more up and coming or amateur, um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, I just mean in the, in the kind of political economy of rap and hip hop, have not yet, quote, made it to great, uh, commercial acclaim or success yet. They, as you say, are absolutely not afforded, uh, that ability or recognition that they may be uh, describing a reality, they may be representing a persona, uh, they aren't afforded uh, that type of artistic recognition that people in all other genres appear to be, and those who have at least made it to the general kind of center of capitalist high uh, recognition in rap and hip-hop are. Um, but when we talk about people like Skeet or Mac or others who are at the starting phases, uh, police and prosecutors are all too willing to treat these lyrics as though they are word-by-word accounts of this person's own lived life. And that's totally distinct from other art forms, and it's totally distinct from more commercially successful artists. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's getting me more excited right now. The, the brilliance of what you just shared or the fact that you said Drake from The Six. I never thought that I would hear you quoting... Quoting that, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I did want to ground our listeners into the actual test that is now operating to bring in rap lyrics to trials so that they can kind of follow along with the rest of the discussion that will be flowing. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about what came from the Skeet case, the Crown and Skeet, in terms sure. of the admissibility of rap lyrics in particular. To, for the way I understood it, Justice Watts, at the admis- admissibility analysis, weighed the probative value and prejudicial effect and talked about the significant nexus between the lyrics and that are being tendered for admission and the offense which the appellant was charged with. So the lyrics are about um, not, you know, not, not succumbing to, to the police, not snitching, and the actual offense with which he was charged, the motive was perhaps he was so upset about a breach in the code of silence that he murdered someone. And and I think the justice also said that this artistic expression is a composition of both fictional and autobiographical features, which is a little confusing to me. It sounds like a contradiction. So I'll just, I'll just wonder if we could unpack that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we do unpack it, it's also really important to keep one 
other feature of the admissibility of, of this type of evidence in mind um, as we talk through this test together. Um, and that's just to recall that um, as you, Afshin, for instance, were narrating some of the lyrics, um, you obviously exacted out or extracted out um, some of the more racially inflammatory, for instance, racial epithets, uh, profanity, uses of, you know, swear words or what some people would call vulgar language. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that when this, if this type of evidence comes into a trial or when it's being reviewed in the context of plea negotiations, the full record, uh, none of it excise, so including racial epithets, including profanities, are all included and are all viewed and um, uh, and digested fully by everyone that's involved in that judicial proceeding. And that's something that for a long time uh, hasn't been permitted. So if the Crown, you know, the Crown for all sorts of basic various reasons is not supposed to be injecting into trials, for instance, racially inflammatory language that isn't absolutely necessary as part of maybe the narration of facts um, because it obviously conjures and creates all sorts of racial narratives and anti-black narratives and narratives about hyper-aggression, violence, uh, uh, all sorts of supremacist hierarchies. But that language is actually all re-injected into trials like this where rap lyrics, which someone else has composed, where their words are, are used against them. And it's those words that they've used in a particular context that are then, you know, transmuted into the trial. So that I think, and all of those words and expressions conjure meaning for all sorts of differently situated players. Um, but it's, it's important to keep in mind that in a discussion like this, um, we would not be using that type of language for all sorts of reasons. Um, and in the trial, however, that language is coming straight in. So it's something to keep in mind about how the narratives of, of cases uh, are generated, right? And, yeah. and how these words are actually being used to, to create and to reinforce narratives that we know um, uh, tend to evoke stereotypes about criminality. Yeah, so I'm really glad you brought this up, Professor Kelly. And I also wanted to say that right. it was a it was a moral and ethical decision, of course, for for us just uh, as people who are not members of the Black community to understand that there's certain words we're not using because certain words right. are within the sovereign space of the Black community, and that rap music right. is also very much an evolution and product of Black sounds. And there is a long-standing history of this form of music being a rebellion and enunciation of life through, at the face of colonial power structures, starting from the transatlantic slave trade and continuing to present day. Uh, the, a lot of this work was also written by Professor Catherine McKittrick. And just understanding that rap music as a part of black culture has become a real social phenomenon that's percolated into the mainstream and has now affected the lives of those outside of the community as well. But it is also always important to situate ourselves and know our positionality when, when regarding, when regarding this music, when regarding these contexts. And yeah, I, I, I do think it's important to mention that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, what I think is really important to mention is that those types of choices about how language should be communicated in what spaces by whom 
uh, are will all go by the wayside when uh, lyrics are constituted and introduced as evidence at a trial because once they are deemed evidence uh, and admissible evidence, and we'll get to that now, what, when and what's the test for that, they will go in um, for the most part unedited, un, um, uh, uh, decontextualized. And that in and out of, of itself, the discussion you've just had about the ethical decisions about how people, that people uh, should be making about language all the time, it, it gets sacrificed because it's deemed as evidence and it should go in in its sometimes in its entirety. Um, so w- when is this evidence supposed to come in and what are the guardrails that are supposedly around it, um, Afshina? Maybe we can just talk through this. So as you mentioned in Skeet, which is a 2017 decision uh, that went up to the Ontario Court of Appeal um, that you used for the intro to today's episode, um, what the court said there is that there has to be, as you said, I've seen a, quote, significant nexus between the lyrics that are tendered for admission and the offense. And this language of significant nexus is actually drawn from a United States uh, decision called Skinner from New Jersey, Mm -hmm. where the prosecution uh, was relying on rap lyrics. And they also reinforce the point that trial judges, when considering whether to introduce such evidence, should be attentive to the fact that this is expressive artistic language and that there may be this issue around it not being biographical and that they should at least be attentive to the question if you are bringing in evidence to suggest that it reflects the views or actions of the person who wrote that rap lyric. Uh, you want to be pretty sure that it actually reflects their life experience and their own words and their own views and their own actions. And and you've already, I think, Efshin, um, uh, articulated many of the reasons why that's often not the case and why that's not assumed for other art forms. Mm-hmm. Um, so they said you had to attend to it, um, but they didn't draw any sharp lines about how you a judge or a, a, a person deciding whether to even try to introduce this evidence, a prosecutor would actually do that work, right? Of trying to disaggregate the expression from the persona or biographical reality. Um, and the second piece they said, uh, which I've just mentioned, is there has to be this significant nexus. Now, on its face, that sounds kind of promising. It seems to suggest, well, it can't just be tangentially related to the alleged offense. It can't just be relevant at the margin. There's got to be some significant nexus, some real connection between the lyrics and the, the reason why it's being used. Um, one of the reasons I'm really skeptical of this as a sufficient guardrail against all the dangers that we are, are discussing now, and I think we'll discuss in greater detail, is look at the facts of Skeet itself. Mm-hmm. So as I've seen narrated, Skeet was a case where lyrics are are made, are drafted after an arrest. They're written from the Don Jail. They have these oblique references using profanities and racial epithets to issues around reporting, whether it's to correctional officers, which is what Skeet says it was, or potentially to police. 
Um, but they're very, at really at root, pretty generic. They seem to suggest, as I said earlier, quote-unquote anti-snitching view. Um, and if you look at how the court in Skeet actually suggests, what is that, how is that actually related to the alleged crime here of murder and how, uh, what's the relevancy and what's the probative value? What's the significant nexus here? Well, what they say is that it was reasonable to infer from those lyrics that Skeet knew about a code of silence. And furthermore, you could further infer because he knew about that code of silence, he also believed in it, supposedly through this lyric. And furthermore, because he espoused supposedly a belief in it, he was willing to enforce it through violence. Those are a series of pretty significant and very different inferences. First of all, to say someone knows about a code of silence is really just to say that someone's part of the culture generally. Everybody, every, you know, almost walking human, unless you are very cut off from popular culture, is aware of a code of silence in some form or another. Secondly, saying that you believe in it, which they intuit from the, from this lyric well again many people in many communities believe in versions of a code of silence to some extent or another many 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 people and finally though to intuit from supposedly a knowledge supposedly a belief that one is willing to enforce that through force and that that could be read as a motive in a murder case is a huge leap yet the court of appeal said that that was sufficient to make those logical leaps, to deem that therefore relevant to the question of motive, and to say that that was sufficiently probative, that that it sufficiently, the evidence sufficiently uh, supported those instances that it should go before the trier of fact. And that was deemed to have a sufficient nexus. Um, I I don't know what your view on that is, Efshin, but to me, that in and of itself shows a lot of distance between the, the lyric and the alleged crime. So I'm not convinced that that is a standard that we could trust variously differently situated judges to kind of keep the guardrails up here. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I think as our discussion unfolds and, and we touch other areas of how rap lyrics are used or interact with the criminal justice system, it's also important to I think it would be very important to have a rap-specific paradigm for assessing the admissibility of rap lyrics as evidence because I don't believe that this test right now at all has any regard for the complex social factors at play that we're going to be grappling with, which is the which is how rap lyrics can incite very negative stereotypes about particular populations in our society, how people interact with rap lyrics, how anti-blackness plays a role, how racial stereotyping plays a role. So I think I think there should be a test and, and that'll that'll obviously be one of our end notes of what what should our reform structure be. But just just for our listeners, stay tuned because we will be having a more detailed conversation on this. But I, I agree that I think this test just neglects a very important part of of the issue and and that actually guides us perfectly into our next question where I wanted to talk about bad character evidence and talk a little bit more about the negative stereotyping that gets entrenched through through the use of rap lyrics so yeah should we should we hop right in 
Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So the next question yes. is, it asks, what are yeah. the differences and similarities between bad character evidence and rap lyrics and how it might be used for evidentiary value to show a propensity towards a crime? Should we be worried about how this practice might further entrench racial stereotypes? And just for the benefit of our listeners who might not know what bad character evidence is to begin the conversation, it's basically a category of evidence that is presumptively inadmissible in Canada, meaning that we have to basically argue to bring this kind of evidence into court. So it's not like we can waltz into the court with this kind of evidence. We have to meet certain thresholds and tests and advocate to have it in. And it's it's any evidence that kind of casts the the accused person in a bad light. So if I'm missing anything there, Professor Kelly, you can you can let me know. <laughs> No, that's exactly right, Efshin. And I think I, I think one of the reasons what it, that's important to clarify here. So, as you just said, Efshin, um, when the when the prosecution charges someone with an offense, and let's assume that they proceed to trial, um, or that or you're bargaining about whether to plead guilty or not, and you're considering what evidence might go to trial, um, one of the things that, as a starting point, that the prosecution cannot do unless they meet some exceptional grounds is they can't narrate a series of past disreputable habits or acts or conduct or words that the accused person has done in the past that are separate and apart from the charge. And the reason why they are presumptively not allowed to do that are are several folds. Really, first, that if we had a system where, for instance, someone's been charged with an offense and we know that the, the Crown presumptively can just start narrating all their past crimes or past alleged crimes, you might incentivize police, as Justice Binney said in one decision, to just go after, quote, the usual suspects. Um, and you would end up with this kind of cascading effect where individuals who had past interactions with uh, the criminal legal system would it would continue to just build into an ongoing narrative. And the second thing is that, uh, just as Benny noted, once a trier of fact, whether that's a judge or a jury, hears certain negative information about an individual, it can be very difficult, if not impossible, for them to decide whether they're convinced beyond a reasonable doubt on the current charge once they know this supposedly bad information about this person's character from from the past. So they might just convict because they believe this is the type of person who would commit X offense. So in a system that is in theory supposed to be geared toward truth-seeking and that in theory is supposed to place the burden on the prosecution to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, um, this type of evidence is presumptively inadmissible. So where does that land with respect to rap evidence? So I certainly would not, and I'm not suggesting that rap lyrics per se, or being a rapper, or rapping about supposedly hyper-aggressive or perhaps violent or criminal criminalized conduct, that that in and of itself makes that person a bad character. I actually do not believe that at all. But what I do believe is that when you look at the animating motivation for this rule, part of what it is supposed to guard against is the irrational and emotive 
wrongful decision-making process where someone casts a particular accused as a, quote, bad type of person Mm -hmm. and infers their guilt in part or whole from that. And Mm -hmm. when racial animus, and in particular when an art form that was born out of the Latino and Black experience in the South Bronx and then has percolated um, and become part of the center of artistic creation uh, globally, um, when that uh, when some people continue to hold and it continues to be associated with stereotypes around uh, so-called black criminality, I think that the motivating impulses for the bad character exclusionary rule are very much at play, right? So it's not as though I'm suggesting actually this makes this a bad kind of person. What I'm suggesting, and I know I've seen you um, have reviewed a lot of the social science evidence around this, social scientists have shown that amongst the general public and probably even more so amongst older decision makers, which tend to be judges and juries, um, there are heightened negative stereotypes when someone hears that someone has written particular rap lyrics, that they are involved in rap culture, that they are um, maybe producing personas that appear hyper-violent or that appear negative to the police or that appear to be anti-snitching. Mm-hmm. And my and, and many others' significant concern is that that type of stereotyping and thinking may then produce or influence the decision-making to find someone guilty in a way that is supposed to, supposed to be absolutely uh, unacceptable in our system. So I am very much of the view, as, as you mentioned, that there should be special considerations for this type of evidence um, and, and pressing on the exclusionary side because it is rooted in the Black, Latin, and increasingly also Indigenous experiences And that it has been subject to white backlash from its inception. Mm -hmm. And it's been subject Mm -hmm. to law enforcement backlash from its inception. Even though it is commercially consumed, hard to measure some of these stats, but overwhelmingly often by white audiences, at Mm -hmm. least certainly in the mainstream category. So it's a market that has both been um, produced and, and, and fed by and prospered with uh, white consumers, but has also been subject to intense white backlash from its inception. I think given that history and its very specific context, it should be subject to special, specific consideration um, of inadmissibility. Yeah. So that's a, that's yeah. a long-winded response. <laughs> no, no, it's, um, it's a wonderful one. It's it's wonderfully mapped. And, and I think um, I think just for the benefit of our audiences, I want to zoom in a little bit into some of that social science evidence so that yeah. we can all understand the gravity of the situation. So, yeah, yeah and, and this is, as you know, Professor Kelly, this has kind of been my, my longstanding battle from my undergraduate to my master's degree to present, just, just fighting for rap. So I completely agree with you that, of course, rap music in and of itself lyrics even lyrics that have uh violent words or anything like that they're not they're not inherently bad and they don't make a person bad again this is a place of expression artistic expression but it is important to understand the sociological evidence that points to how people regard rap music and understanding that there is a social interplay that we need to be aware of so Yes. Just uh, I, I remember in your class we studied 
the study called Gangster Rap by Stuart Fishoff. And this was yeah. a study that shows that uh, people who listen to rap music viewed in a negative light, so much so that in Fishoff's research findings, people associated rap lyrics with more negative inferences, even if the person was not known to have committed a crime. And that more negative personality associate associations were made with people to who have who had rap lyrics kind of associated with them so it just kind of gives heights to these this idea of like moral prejudice the stuff that we want to protect protect the accused person from um and we can get into kind of moral prejudice and reasoning prejudice more so in detail and, and define it for our audience but just studies like this or we have another study by Professor Tanovich in his article, Rethinking the Admissibility of Rap Lyrics in Criminal Cases, where he wrote that using rap lyrics as evidence raises serious concerns about moral and reasoning prejudice, again, which we will define. But it's it's to the extent that when rap lyrics are present, there are, it will trigger and inflame stereotypical assumptions about race and crime so just just adding to these things and finally there was another study we did in your class your evidence class by adam dunbar uh called the threatening nature of rap music where people reading lyrics and being told that they're reading country music did not think that the song was autobiographical whereas people reading lyrics and were told that this was rap did think that the song was autobiographical so instantly then we can see this change in reasoning for the regular citizen in thinking that when something is associated with rap, if we think it's autobiographical, we clearly have this inherent implication that there's a certain demographic of people who are inherently more violent. So I, I think that's just like important to like think about this this overwhelming sociological evidence that points to this negative light that rap suffers in. And again, this has been my passion project to talk about like, no, no, not this, don't attack rap. But it, it is, it, it's, it's overwhelming, it's sad, but it's, it's to the point where we need to do something about it too. So yeah, I just wanted to point out some of those studies and, and maybe get in a little bit to like what moral and reasoning prejudice is, more so in terms of the definitions. Great, absolutely. So I and I think I think you're absolutely right that there is growing attention both by social scientists and by legal scholars and linguistic scholars, scholars of hip hop advocates um, to this issue. And I think the more that that happens, hopefully it will continue to shed more light both on the the lack often of probative value because the lyrics may not actually be biographical at all, oftentimes not. Um, what is this significant nexus, and this overwhelming prejudicial effect. So when we talk about prejudicial effect in the context of evidence, we're talking about the effect that evidence or uh, pieces of information that the parties want to adduce as evidence. When we speak about prejudicial effect, we're talking about the ways that that evidence, if it's admitted, may uh, inflame, may lead to, may be inflammatory, may lead uh, to rational or emotive errors because the decision maker, whether it's a judge or a jury or, you know, earlier in the stage when people are, bar- when people are bargaining, um, may be likely to, to rely upon or be steered by their emotions, their emotional response 
two particular lyrics rather than the actual information about the charge in front of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, stereotypes about young black men who may be um, uh, often the authors of these lyrics and that held together those prejudicial strands, both rational, irrational, and more emotive, and why we refer to moral or reasoning prejudice, that they will overwhelm the finder of fact's ability to actually parse and consider only the evidence about the crime that, that they are being asked to adjudicate. And again, that they will fall back into those errors that we were guarding against in the bad character context by suggesting as a matter of flawed reasoning or flawed emotive responses, that because this person wrote these types of lyrics and is using this type of language, they're more likely guilty. Yeah, exactly. And what's really, I'll just say this uh, on this point, Efshin, is that in 2019, the same Ontario Court of Appeal that decided Skeet um, decided a case called Mills, another mm-hmm, rap lyric mm-hmm. And as part of that appeal, the appellants argued specifically that rap lyrics are strongly linked to black culture and that there's a danger that if they're admitted, they will, quote, trigger and inflame stereotypical assumptions that triers of fact bring with them to court about race and culture. To that argument, the only thing that the Ontario Court of Appeal had to say was, quote, these factors which included these stereotypical assumptions alone do not render them prima facie inadmissible in a criminal trial, meaning don't render rap lyrics prima facie inadmissible. Rap lyrics can carry artistic meaning while at the same time reflect real life events. So the Mm -hmm. court didn't dismiss outright that uh, a rap lyrics oftentimes are not autobiographical and B that the introduction of rap lyrics can simply smuggle in very obvious stereotypical assumptions about young black men. Um, But they simply said that wasn't enough to make them prima facie inadmissible. And they they refused, again, to, like, erect any greater uh, safeguards or guardrails against it, which is why I'm a bit skeptical, at least at this point, um, uh, about the, the... the role of some judges in safeguarding against these. So this issue was raised. This is this is 2019. This is very recent, mm-hmm. um, and it did not get, in my view, sufficient consideration of the prejudicial concerns that you're raising. Yeah, and that the, so yeah. is clear on. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm actually really glad that you brought up Mills because I wanted to talk about two things. So. We're going to go in two directions. The first one is a little point about Mills, and then this will lead us right into a discussion on judicial notice. So the first point that I that struck me with Mills is that in order to mitigate, so they said that these factors alone do not uh, make rap lyrics prima facie uh, inadmissible. However, they did try to give jury instructions so that the jury could be cautioned on the way that rap lyrics could be used. And so they were told to use their lyrics only in a certain way and not in another. So, for example, to guard against moral and reasoning prejudice, jury instructions look like, okay, you might find 
the you might find guns and et cetera highly offensive, but we can't be reinforcing stereotypes. And so there, there are just a few limiting instructions that are given by the judge to the jury. However, my my issue with this Mills case is that human beings don't compartmentalize information like this. We aren't given information or able to say, okay, now I'm going to put it into this box and I'm only going to use it for this and I'm going to free myself of all bias and not apply it to other factors like how, how does one internally compete with racial biases that were present prior to entering the courtroom and then are triggered while in the courtroom? I just, I just don't think it was a realistic measure to safeguard against the, the ramifications of, of admitting these rap lyrics. I, and uh, again, I, I really agree with you, Afshin. Um, the, the, uh, to look at some of the social science evidence for instance, around the admissibility of an accused's criminal record when they might choose to testify in their trial. Um, The evidence is quite clear from social scientists that human beings have an exceptionally difficult, if not uh, are just unable, uh, have an exceptionally difficult time to compartmentalize in precisely the way that, uh, as you say, that the courts are suggesting that a jury instruction would um, would create. Uh, so, you know, I'll give you an example to go back to the Skeet case that we had earlier. Uh, in the jury instruction in Skeet, the, the judge said to uh, the jury, quote, you may be offended by some of the contents of this rap song, but you must not let that influence your consideration of this evidence, nor should you use the rest of the contents of the rap song to decide or help you decide that Mr. Skeet is the sort of person who would commit the offense charged. Um, and that's, you know, and then they they move on. Um, but it, <laughs> it really, it it denies reality to mm-hmm. either suggest, look, A, we've read to you, uh, again, unedited rap lyrics that were drafted kind of off the cuff in a correctional setting by a young uh, black male. And w- now that we've done that, it's unedited. Profanities are there. Racial epithets are there. You might be, quote, offended by that, but you shouldn't use any of that uh, to influence your consideration of this case or to influence whether you think Mr. Skeet is the sort of person who would commit the offense charged. Mm-hmm. And yet we know from precisely the studies that you cited that this is exactly the way that human psychology works, that people will hear, many people will within the culture will hear this language abstracted out of its context, read, not listened to, um, taken out of a very different milieu of a corrections facility, transported into a sanitized courtroom and read on a sheet of paper, and they will draw inferences from that, and the social science evidence suggests they will. So I think these these jury warnings, um, you know, they provide some kind of bomb for for judges and people within the system to think that they are doing something about or eradicating racism in the context of decision making um but the the social science evidence just does not bear that out as something that the human mind is capable of which i think again loops back to our question of 
why why are we not more proactive here in just keeping more of this evidence out of the courtroom? Amazing. And and while we have judges in the hot seat, I'm just going to bring this into our second last question <laughs> for the day. <laughs> and so, judges, I, I do want to thank one judge, my, my professor for trial ad, Justice Donald McLeod. He gave an amazing lecture at Queen's Law recently on critical race theory. So I'm drawing yeah. a bit from that lecture to talk about the evolution yeah. of, of case law and its recognition of racism in society so maybe we can give like a little bit I'll, I'll give a little summary of that and then we'll talk about judicial notice which for the benefit of our listeners it's it's essentially the judges being able to draw upon their own knowledge from facts outside of those presented in court to make certain conclusions and there's there are confines to that and we we could iterate the test if needed but essentially here we're concerned with how judicial notice can help address these undertones of racism that exists with the use and presence of rap lyrics in criminal trials so kind of in terms of the evolution of of recognizing racism in our society and particularly anti-black racism we can start with the crown and parks case from 1993 where the judge quoted that racism and anti-black racism is a part of the community's psyche so this was this was monumental but then from this acknowledgement that okay racism exists great then we have small incremental changes over time in 1998 we have the crown and williams where the judge said racial prejudice is invasive and corrosive so now racial bias is being acknowledged but again, this is within a five-year age gap between the age of the case, Parks, and Williams. And then again, we're slowly making more incremental changes where we acknowledge in another case, the Crown and Brown, that subconscious and unconscious bias may occur with policing. So now, in 2003, in the Brown case, we're acknowledging the presence of racial profiling. And we have to wait another six years for 2009 in the Grant decision the Crown and Grant, that psychological detention because of a relationship between young racialized folks and police officers exists. So from 1993 all the way to 2009, we have now acknowledged that psychological detention is something that exists, racism exists, but again, when we talk about the Mills case in Skeet, the, the jury and the judge, uh, sorry, the judge is unwilling to be convinced that despite all this overwhelming sociological evidence that exists, that rap lyrics in and of itself are not enough to be deemed as presumptively inadmissible. So there's a gap here because we know that racism exists and we know that anti-black racism exists and we know that, it, that there's a phenomenon of how it interacts with the criminal justice system and that it's percolated into all parts of society in Canada. So what do we, what do, we do here? What, what's going on? Yeah, I think it's a great, and thank you, Efshin, for setting that out, and Justice McLeod for his lecture at Queen's for setting out this trajectory um, in, in such a concise but really illuminating way. So I think a couple of things. The first is that when we think about the rules of evidence in Canada, for the most part, our rules of evidence have been developed through the common law. We do have a federal Canada Evidence Act. We do have provincial evidence acts. Um, but for the most part, our rules of evidence, including in this area, have tended to be developed through courts and through judges. And uh, again, to kind of put our judges in the hot seat, um, judges, because of their institutional 
role and the incentives and disincentives they have for any type of seismic change. Uh, the changes that you have noted have been modest and incremental, incredibly important, incredibly hard fought to get by advocates, by racial justice advocates, to get those footholds and those gains. Um, but but they are, at best, what we might call kind of slow and steady incremental reform from within. So I think if you are going to squarely take on an issue like uh, special rules um, around or exceptional rules about particular kinds of evidence, we, we might be better situated to look to Parliament, to our legislature, and to push for uh, statutory reforms with respect to this kind of evidence, either in the Canada Evidence Act, Provincial Act, mm-hmm. or perhaps even in the Criminal Code, which is where you see sexual history evidence, for instance, is strictly and tightly regulated because of efforts to eradicate myths and stereotypes in the area of sexual assault law. That was done through Parliament and through revisions to the Criminal Code because of very successful uh, feminist advocacy. Um, and I think that some of the political advocacy that we sometimes tend as lawyers to channel through the courts, um, I think it's always important to keep an eye on on political mobilization and political views. Um, the other kind of caveat I would add to this um, is the role of policing in all of this, which you mentioned that we now have judicial no- notice of anti-black racism and racism against indigenous peoples and people of color and poorer people and people with mental illness, um, that they they receive disparate and much more heavy-handed policing than their more affluent uh, white counterparts in society. Um, and police have often been intimately involved in the rise of the policing of rap music, whether it has been because rap lyrics have sometimes put policing abuse front and center. Um, uh, certainly that was the case in kind of the, the rise of West Coast rap in the United States. Um, but also because police are often coming in to testify as experts. Um, mm-hmm. And I put experts there in scare quotes um, because it's, it's far from clear that they actually um, uh, are properly situated to be interpreters and interlocutors of rap lyrics, um, but they are often a, a, an important piece of the Crown bringing this type of evidence in. They may work in anti-gang squads. They may come in and say, look, we have all this experience with urban-based policing, and this is what these lyrics mean, this is what this word means, this is what this expression means, and they're often relied upon as interpreters. Um, and that is uh, is a real concern in terms, again, of like the institutional competency, right, question. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final piece I would say on this is that as judicial notice of anti-black racism becomes more profound, for instance, at the sentencing stage, the very end stage of the criminal process, what we're really talking about today is the front stage. What's the kind of package of evidence that a Crown prosecutor can rely on? either when they're trying to get someone to plead guilty to a charge as part of a plea resolution or when they're going to proceed to trial. What's the the package of evidence that they can rely upon when they create a narrative about a particular crime? And that's really foundational because if they are able to rely on this type of evidence that often smuggles in with it all sorts of 
stereotypes and racism against younger uh, people of color, uh, that, that all kind of accrues to the benefit of the Crown. It gives them a better bargaining position pre-trial and, and potentially helps them at trial. And uh, challenging that at its root, I think, uh, you know, raises sometimes more difficult questions for courts, for advocates, than it does uh, to attend to race and, and racism only at the end stage, which is where it's, I, I think, getting a lot more institutional reception right now. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to be attentive to it at the much earlier stages, including at the stage of policing. Yes, I completely agree. And I think I think uh, this this actually wonderfully kind of brings us to the to the end, although I want to unpack this more and there's so much more to say. I think Absolutely. our discussion, yeah, I know, I know that we could go on for hours and hours about this, <laughs> right, or at least at least I would love to, but um, this does bring us to kind of our concluding point where I think we can both agree that at least this conversation was sparked by uh, the state of California passing a bill in August of 2022, which made rap yes. lyrics presumptively inadmissible in in trials, and I was just, I think we definitely need to have at least personally, I think we definitely need to have that same kind of presumptive inadmissibility and a rap-specific paradigm. I know that there's a lot of conversation about segregating other forms of music, but I think rap specifically is what we're concerned with because of the the social structures that are animated with the presence and use of rap lyrics in courts. So I do think we need to kind of like address this head-on and have any test for the admission of rap music needs to take account for the for the realities of racial stereotyping that it invokes. And of course, of course, I want to spend so much more time. But before we run out of time today, I do want to quickly just give a little shout out to everybody who we've cited throughout our conversation. David Tanovich, Rap on Trial authors Eric Nielsen and Andrea L. Dennis, Justice McLeod, Professor Catherine McKittrick from Queen's Law, Stuart Fishoff, our colleague A.J. Davidson, my co-researcher Nazneen Ilias, Christy Nurse, our supervising lawyer, Mark Dean, Dinah and Chancellor and the CFRC team. And of course, you, Professor Kelly, thank you so, so much for your genuinely enlightening and insightful discussion on this topic. It's always such a joy to learn from you and hear from you. And your insights are just so incredible and helpful to the discussion of this very much evolving field of law. And I, I just I can't thank you enough for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Efshin, and thanks for convening the conversation. And I hope that your interest, passion, advocacy in this area continues. I know that you will soon be practicing law, and I hope that uh, our, our upcoming students and and new lawyers continue to work on this issue and uh, racial justice and, and economic social justice in the system more generally. So thanks for convening this, Efshin. It's been a total pleasure for me. Thank you, Professor Kelly. And honestly, when we have props like you just guiding us and grounding us i think i think you keep us with our passions and remind us what we're here for so thank you so oh you're very (laughs) and before we end the show i just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer we like to say the views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers host or the queen's university faculty of law this podcast does not contain any legal advice pro bono students canada pbsc is a student organization a pbsc queen's law student volunteer to prepare this podcast pbsc students are not lawyers and not authorized to provide legal advice the podcast contains a general discussion of certain legal and related issues only if you require legal advice 
please consult with a lawyer. Today's show was produced and hosted by Ashin Chowdhury. For more Pro Bono Radio, check us out on ProBonoRadio.com or on more broadcasting platforms such as Apple and Spotify. So check us out weekly on CFRC 101.9 FM, Kingston's only campus and community radio station. Thank you, everyone, and that's all for now.